This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. Monday the 15th of August, you are listening to The Cable. It is 5pm in the City of London. I'm Guy Johnson in London alongside Alex Steele over in New York. Um, A lot going on today. A lot of things to talk about. Uh, We're going to focus on what's happening over at Heathrow. Capacity constraints being extended, but it looks like BA staff are going to get a huge pay rise. This ahead of uh, employment data out of the UK tomorrow. Uh, We've got commodity prices under significant pressure. This is, we see, Alex, very weak, Mm -hmm. very weak uh, data out of China. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I think the big takeaway from today is, once again, the markets broadly largely becalmed. Yeah, totally becalmed because no one's there. I mean, the volume is is really, really low. Um, I also want to highlight a headline guy that just crossed. UK Uber drivers are also going to get a pay rise. So, like, this is all happening. The pay rise story is really happening. Liverpool dock workers are striking because they didn't like their 7% pay increase offer. Like, this is, it makes it a structural situation. Wage pressure. Wage price, wage price spiral. Yippers. Andrew Billy is not going to like that very much. But again, market's not even blinking on this. The market, yeah, the market uh, is at the moment very, very kind of calm, working its way through all this, it seems. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what shakes out of that malaise. I, traditionally, quite a quiet period in some ways. You, you normally see a bit of volatility in August, mm-hmm. but I think everybody's waiting, I think, for September, for everybody to get back to their desks to really figure things out. So that's kind of where we sit right now. Let me just give you a couple of numbers. Uh, the FTSE 100 closed at 75.09. It's up by one-tenth of one percent. Oil stocks down, healthcare companies up. Stateside, where Alex is now. NASDAQ is up by four tenths of one percent. S&P is up by two tenths of one percent. So those are the market headlines. Let's get the actual headlines. Charlie Pellet. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Tens of millions of pounds worth of fresh produce is being left to rot in UK fields because farmers can't get enough workers to pick crops just as the cost of living crisis worsens. The National Farmers Union says, according to a survey of almost 200 growers, about 22 million pounds worth of fruit and vegetables were wasted in the first half because of labor shortages. Ukraine's parliament has voted to extend martial law and mobilization by another 90 days through November 21st, a measure that was put in place after Russia invaded the country on February 24th. The plan comes as Russian forces continue to shell cities and towns in East Ukraine, including Kharkiv. Boris Johnson is on his second holiday of the month and does not plan to dial into any remote engagements, according to his spokesman, fueling the sense of inertia in the UK government weeks ahead of the Prime Minister's formal departure in September. Adding to the perception that Johnson has already checked out, two large removal vans could be seen outside his office and residence in Downing Street this morning. Johnson visited Slovenia with his family early this month, and he was videotaped shopping in a Greek supermarket over the weekend. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. I think one of the removal trucks may have crashed into the fence at the end of Downing Street, which could be quite expensive. They're quite solid fences. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's not gone all swimmingly, but I think he's doing it while he's away. Mm-hmm. Having a that nice was, time of things. Enjoying that was fascinating. Himself. Thanks, Guy. <laughs> 
Let's talk about what Alex <laughs> wants to talk about. <laughs> commodities and China. Thank you. Oh, it's so exciting. Let's talk about commodities. <laughs> So let's talk about why we want to talk about commodities. The reason we want to talk about commodities today is nothing to do with Alex's desire to talk about commodities. It's because the Chinese data that we saw overnight seems to have caused something of a stir today. Um, China's economic slowdown deepening in July. Uh, we've got the property slump continuing. Uh, that's rippling through into industrial data, into retail data. You've obviously got this ongoing coronavirus lockdown as well. So retail sales are weak. Industrial data was weak. Investment data was all weak. As a result, of which we got a surprise, maybe not so surprising, 10 basis point rate cut from the PBOC. Tom Orlick is here to set us straight on why this is important. Tom, a surprise, shocking 10 basis point rate cut from the PBOC. Why is a 10 basis point rate cut so important? So I think what's important here, Guy, is the signal. China was expected to recover into the second half following the end of COVID lockdowns in Shanghai and Beijing. The numbers are showing that recovery isn't happening. Real estate, the correction, the slump in the real estate sector is just so big, it's offsetting everything else. Mm -hmm. The PBOC is responding to that with the 10 basis point cut. That's a signal that policy is turning, that stimulus is on the way. Of course, on its own, 10 basis points of rate cut is not of a sufficient magnitude to change the direction mm -hmm. of the Chinese property sector or the economy as a whole. Right. So, like, why did the markets not do anything? I mean, I understand commodity markets got hit pretty hard, but, like, that was it, and we're even off the lows. Like, I'm trying to understand, I mean, we knew it was going to be bad, and I get that. But it was still pretty terrible. And it's not like we've seen some real support coming in from the policy guys that are going to actually significantly change the trajectory. Yeah. So, um, I think that the, the idea that there is a significant real estate slump in China um, and that that is going to be dragging on the economy in the months ahead is kind of well absorbed by the markets. Um, so, perhaps even though the July numbers are already baked in, that kind of broad idea of China weakness heading into the end of the year um, is not a surprise to investors. Um, why didn't they react to the PBOC cut? Well, I think it's because the 10 basis points is a signal, but on its own, not enough to change the direction of the economy. Is anything be done really with it. You've got a property crisis that is that is a kind of slow implosion, and you've got COVID zero on top of that. Is there anything that policymakers can, with those two absolutely enormous forces working on the economy, is there anything that policymakers can really do? I, Ten basis points isn't very much, but but say it had been fifty basis points or a hundred basis points, how much of an effect would that really have? So I think on the property side. There's two things which China's policymakers need to do. The first is to deliver fiscal policy support. Um, we need to see a commitment from Beijing to allow significantly more infrastructure spending to offset the drag from the property sector. The second thing is to ease back on some of the controls on real estate developers, which have actually been the trigger for this downturn. Um, mm -hmm. So until we see that fiscal support and that change in direction on real estate policy, I don't think that problem is going away. On COVID zero, well, 
that's not so much the focus of the markets right now, but it doesn't mean the problem has gone away. Uh, China has 1.4 billion people. They are COVID naive. They haven't been exposed to the virus. They don't have natural immunity. Mm-hmm. Neither have they been dosed up with the advanced mRNA vaccines, which most people in the US and Europe have well, now had. Um, so that problem of exiting COVID zero, very challenging problem. It's one that China really hasn't started to grapple with yet. Tom, um, and quickly, because if you guys haven't seen that IKEA video, so they shut down an IKEA store because there was a close contact that would, had been in the store who'd just been near an asymptomatic six-year-old. I mean, and, and they basically shut down the store. It was crazy. People were like trying to swarm their way out. And I'm asking this as a way to talk about social unrest. Is that something that's going to kick up? So people go very quickly to problems in China's economy, problems with COVID zero, to the risk of social unrest in China. Um, I just think that's kind of unlikely. Um, I think we have to see things getting very, very significantly worse before we saw the kind of social unrest which presented a challenge to to Communist Party rule. Um, I do think, though, that the IKEA story highlights the extreme costs of the COVID zero strategy. Yeah. No kidding. Really, guys, find it on Twitter and watch the video. It, it it's really kind of blows your mind a little bit. All right, Tom Morley, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it joining us from Bloomberg Economics. Um, that's the economic part of it. Now we'll get to the market part of it. Estine Jakobsen of Saxo joined us on television. We'll play a little bit of what he said about how to invest. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. The Chinese economy, as we've just been discussing, has some significant problems. The Eurozone economy, highly exposed to those problems. So we've got an external threat to the Eurozone economy. We've also got significant internal issues that need to be dealt with as well. The Rhine continues to go lower, hasn't rained for a long time. The river is basically impassable. Uh, We are seeing electricity prices continuing to surge and surge and surge. Are we going to have enough gas for the winter? There remains a huge and open question. How much trouble is Europe in right now and how investors, how should investors really be playing that? Uh, Alex and I caught up to try and answer that question uh, with Saxo Bank's CIO, Steen Jakobsen. I think it's, uh, as as with the US so-called recession, it really depends on whether you want to talk about real growth or nominal growth. Nominal growth in Europe is still running along nicely at 5 to 6%, while of course there is a risk that the real growth will come down. What matters for the stock market, which is the explanation to the question you just posed, is that um, stocks is uh, trading on nominal growth and nominal impact. So for the market, as long as we are growing and the growing and top line is growing, I don't think it's a major concern. I have been in the camp that the recession is not going to happen in the U.S. And in case of Europe, I think it's going to be more shallow simply because the private sector is in a better position than ever in history. The refinancing, similar to in the U.S., has already been done. And of course, the impact on on Germany uh, and and the impact on energy prices is already priced in. So, Steen, how do you have that view if Russian gas gets cut off altogether? Like, do you think that energy crisis is actually going to be okay? Or are we at the bottom of that crisis now? Not at all. I I actually think if there's one common denominator between all of the macro narratives that we have right now is this naive concept that the inflation has gone away and we have dealt with the energy crisis, Alex. So what is really going on is that we have priced the uh, the negative impact on potentially no gas from, uh, from Russia. And that cost is roughly one percentage point. 
But at one percentage point, it's still not enough, certainly not to take the nominal growth down into negative. And it's not at all good enough, in my opinion, either to move away from the plus minus zero in real terms. So I think it's 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 a story about how the market wants to take the high frequency data, the geopolitical concerns and escalate that into sort of a, a recession proven story. Mm. Remember, uh, recession is always uh, conducted and, and measured post the actual uh, recession. And it looks like now, yes, we'll have a dramatic slowdown in growth, especially on the consumer side. And the tidbits that you saw in energy showed that the politicians in Europe is more likely to ban inflation than actually to do something about the underlying underlying cause of the recession itself. Sorry, did you say ban inflation? How do you ban inflation? Well, the French have done it, haven't they? They basically made sure that you have a capital depletion of the uh, SOE companies in, in uh, the energy sector in France, and then they are moving that, that depletion of capital into the pockets of the consumers by keeping the inflation rate down. We've seen similar tactics now being come and brought to the table in the UK. Uh, we've seen that the energy companies is uh, potentially under attack from uh, profit sharing or too much profit and the likes. But again, we are not dealing with the underlying cause, which is that they there's too little supply and there's too little investment. And those investment, of course, is not going to be increased under a incitation mark banning of oil. Mm-hmm. Steen Jakobsen of uh, Saxo Bank joining us there. So that basically was his point over the 20 minutes we spoke to him, was that we're in a structural inflation, whether it's wages staying pretty little higher because the labor market is so tight. We can see it now, UK um, uh, Uber, we have Boeing raising prices, we have a strike uh, over um, in, where is it? Oh, my God. Liverpool. Liverpool. Thank you. I was like Beatles, something with the Beatles. Liverpool. Uh, <laughs> Liverpool, etc. So the idea that you're going to have structural inflation because of that on one hand with wages, on the other hand, uh, you have it with energy. It was a pretty grim picture, I got to say. When we, when we stopped talking to him, I was like, I do not feel better about where we're headed right now. No, I think the UK is a weird and wonderful um, issue at the moment, as much as it has a bunch of factors which are making the labour market much tighter than elsewhere. So the Brexit story is certainly contributing to that in a fairly significant way. But it is maybe the way that other economies are going to be going. The Bank Mm -hmm. of England has been out with some fairly fairly vicious warnings about what's going to happen with the economy. You do wonder whether the ECB first and ultimately the Fed maybe heading in that direction as well. Uh, We'll talk about some of those wage rises in just a moment. Lots of news coming out from the travel sector over the last couple of hours. We'll discuss all of it next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele over in New York. A lot of news from the travel sector over the last hour. Let me walk you through it. First piece of news to break, London's Heathrow Airport to extend capacity limits to October the 29th. It basically is struggling with the amount of demand it's getting at the moment. The capacity limits are basically going to stay throughout the rest of the summer. Then we get news from unions in the sector that thousands of BA staff are to get an average 13, 13% pay rise. Following on from that, we get news that thousands of UK Uber drivers We'll also be getting a pay rise. I don't know how big it's going to be. I'd be surprised if it was 13%, but this after union talks as well. Um, let's bring in Bluebug Sidharth Philip to talk about all of this. Sid, we've talked in te- uh, on television about what's happening at Heathrow in terms of the capacity limits. Um, let's start off, therefore, with what's happening with BA staff getting an average 13% pay rise. That sounds extraordinary and sounds to me like like BA is really struggling to recruit staff right now. 
Absolutely. I mean, uh, British Airways, just like every other company in the aviation industry in Europe, is really struggling with staff. And this is actually a ballot of a previously announced deal that EA reached with checking staff, uh, which pushed off a strike. So this was back in July, which seems like many years ago, but it was just a month ago when British Airways agreed and, uh, agreed a deal with uh, checking staff and that helped them call off the strike, which was threatening to sort of disrupt flights at the peak of summer travel. And so the, the workers have now accepted the deal that the unions had agreed to back in July. And this is sort of good news for the workers. It shows the power that they have at the moment in terms of given the fact that there's such a sharp staffing shortage. I mean, they're able to negotiate a pretty mm-hmm. sweet pay package. So is it going to work when it comes to overall Heathrow? Like the main issue with Heathrow is what? And would a 13% pay rise, for example, kind of fix it? So yes and no. So it does it does help EA resolve its issues and potential strikes. It sort of puts those off and it helps them stabilize their own operations. But the larger issue at Heathrow is not just BA. It, it is across the board with airlines. It's across the board with ground handling companies. And of course, it is with the Heathrow, uh, Heathrow itself. And so it, this resolves one piece of the jigsaw puzzle, but there's still multiple pieces to be sort of put into place before travel comes back to normal. So in terms of travel coming back to normal... How far through that process are we? At the moment, we are capacity constrained. Heathrow is having to put extra capacity limits on. They're now going to last throughout the whole of the summer. How long is it going to take for Heathrow to fix all its problems? You talk about the fact that, that there are other issues at Heathrow, and clearly ground handling is, is one of those. I, how, we thought we'd have it fixed by now. We don't. Heathrow is now having to extend. Is that going to be the last extension, do we think? So Heathrow previously warned that it might actually take until next summer to resolve staffing issues. So it doesn't look like this could be the end of the staffing issues. Uh, there is sort of hope the, the the airport talked about ramping up security staff and they're close to 2019 levels on that front. And on the on the other front, they've been talking about how the ball is in the com- in the court of the <clears throat> ground handling companies. So really, it's across the. It's a different. It's a very different situation, mm-hmm. and nobody's really quite sure when things will actually go back to normal. And it it really does take multiple parties to actually get together to actually sort out this issue. Because otherwise, one getting their act together and somebody else not, that doesn't really help things. Yeah, and you get one get your act together, and then they increase their pay. The other one doesn't. How is that also quote unquote fair? Um, the other story that you actually put out just a little while ago, and I couldn't remember Liverpool, but let's get to it. So dock workers in Liverpool uh, voted to strike over pay. From what I understand, though, um, the port was offering them 7%. I mean, that seems pretty good. What would happen here? Talk us through. Yeah, so the dock workers in Liverpool voted to strike, and that's the second strike action from a major port in the UK. Liverpool the fourth largest port in the UK, in, in Britain, but it is a key hub for transatlantic trade. And so while the union hasn't announced when they will strike, the workers did say they did vote in favor of strike action. And that's largely because the unions are arguing that 7% pay increases aren't enough to counter yep. 13% inflation that's forecasted. So the unions are holding out for a better deal. 
And really, at the moment, they have the power because of massive labour shortages that we just talked about, first of all. What is it going to take to end the train strikes? Another big round later this week. Can't wait. Thursday, wait, but this affects yeah. you guys, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. This all affects me. Home. All of this affects me. Well, yeah, um, but you're not, like, waiting by the dock. I'm saying, like, but literally you could be stranded in, in London, no? Yes, yes. Okay. Sid. So, so the, train, the train strikes are uh, another sort of massive looming issue, and that's, again, where the real uh, the, the RMC union, along with Unite, along with the drivers' union, and they're all sort of taking action in terms of strike action. And we also have, don't forget, the London underground workers striking on Friday. So it's a full week of disruption across the UK and really it doesn't, doesn't look like things are getting better. I mean, they did have a previous round of strikes last month and that didn't really take things anywhere. So we really have to see how this sort of progresses and, yeah, it just promises more chaos for everybody in the UK at the moment. So, Guy, do you drive in? Like, are you going to have to, like here, if the train shut down, the city cannot move. Like, it's like when a winter storm comes and the MTA shuts and down, I, I, we're, we're toast. Yeah, so so I can drive. They're, they are operating a very limited service to key stations. So I will be coming through Woking, go to Woking, park at Woking, get the train in. But there's very few trains. It'll be it'll be fun getting in and out. Um, on Friday, they're going to shut the trains, tra- the, the, um, the, the uh, underground down. That means everybody will... I don't know what the weather looks like on Friday. I think it's okay. Basically, it means that everybody either not going to come in or they'll be on their Boris bikes, their their Santander bikes, mm. which, again, is just a recipe for chaos. Chaos. Yeah, doesn't sound like fun. Guys, Lots of people move. riding bikes that don't normally yeah. ride bikes. Always entertaining. Yeah, it's going to be great fun stuff. Thank yeah. you very much indeed to Bloomberg Sid Health Philip. Busy day for Sid uh, and the, uh, the transport team. Uh, up next, we're going to be talking about what's happening in the hedge fund industry. How are they allocating capital right now? Charlie Bassack is going to be joining us to tell us what is going on. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson over in London. It is 5.30 where you guys are here in the U.S. It's just past 12.30. Um, You know, you actually have stocks higher. And this is why I say it with some skepticism because the S&P is up three-tenths of one percent. But the data that we got out of the U.S. today was really bad. NAHB housing market index falling to 49. Empire Manufacturing coming in negative 31. Orders were not great. Uh, production was not great. I mean, this is a really ugly number, and stocks really took it in stride. In fact, you can make an argument that the meme stocks uh, are continuing to climb higher, Bed Bath & Beyond uh, rallying as well. The only thing that's really, really, really weighing on the equity index is uh, the energy index, and that's really the China story. You have oil still down by about 4 or 5%, although I have to say the base metals have really bottomed out and come back a bit. They're just down by about 1%. So, it really raises the question, are we really pricing in this negative data? And also, who's trading? Volume is really pitiful. It's worse over where you are, Guy, but it's pretty bad here as well. Yeah, we know how to do a summer. I just don't show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll see you September 6th. That, that sounds like a plan. When, um, when, when the schools go back. Yeah, your school. My daughter doesn't go back till the 13th. Oh, my Lord. 
bananas. Um, all right, that's a snapshot of the equity market here in the U.S. Here from other other headlines is Charlie Pellet. Uh, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Thank you very much indeed. And here's what's going on. Some of the stories we're following. U.K. property asking prices fell at the sharpest pace in almost two and a half years as a traditional summer lull, combined with increased caution about the outlook for the economy. Property search website Rightmove says the cost of new homes listed for sale fell 1.3% in August, reducing the annual pace of growth to 8.2% from 9.3%. The most expensive homes suffered the biggest drop in London had the biggest decline in the country. The Unite Union says thousands of British Airways staff will be getting a 13% pay raise in response to industrial action. Britain's summer has been punctuated by scenes of travel chaos, holidaymakers sleeping on airport floors, motorways jam-packed with cars in sweltering heat, and repeated strikes on the rail network. Various strikes are scheduled for Thursday, Friday, and Saturday this week, with a national one-day rail strike set for Thursday. And London Heathrow Airport has extended a capacity cap through the end of the summer season as the UK hub contends with a prolonged labor shortage at ground handling firms. Following consultation with airlines, a daily limit of 100,000 departing passengers will now apply until October 29th at Heathrow. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Thank you so much, Charlie Pellet. And again, I reiterate that I never want to get on a plane again. I'm just putting that out there. I'll drive through traffic. I'll disagree. I can't wait. I know. I when, when, did you, when did you last get on a plane? Me? Yeah. Uh, la, la, la. I got on it fall of 2021. Right. No, Were that's you? not true. I, I, I went to Cincinnati for a, a funeral a few months ago, and, and it was horrible. I mean, it was a funeral, but also the travel was horrible. And a right. brief story to tell you how much I love airplanes. <laughs> next week, next week I'm off. Oh, is, is this the trip? No, this is not the trip to the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. This is a two-night trip to Alaska. I'm flying all the way up to Anchorage, Alaska from New York, which takes about 13 hours when you factor wow. in connections. I'm then getting on a famous aircraft run called the Milk Run on Alaska Airlines, where you stay on the same plane. You make five stops in small airports along the way. You get off. I'm spending the night in Sitka, Alaska, getting on a Delta Airlines flight next morning and coming back to New York. So two nights in Alaska, one airplane ride that lasts five or six hours. I'm nuts. My wife flat out refuses to go. I, I don't even know what to say to that. You're doing it on your own. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, yeah. This Nobody. I, I've, got, I've got one fellow, a friend who works for the Point Sky Aviation website. He said he would love to go with me, but the problem is he's on holiday in Italy right now. So I, I respect him not going. But Guy, you're welcome to join me. The problem is there are no window seats available on the Alaska Airlines flight. And you got to have a window seat for the yep. northbound. You've got to be sitting on the right-hand seat for the southbound. So I feel like Charlie is somehow in the wrong business. No, you know? I'm not. I, 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 I love traveling. What that is an amazingly horrible yeah. trip. Have fun. Uh, all right, Charlie Pellet uh, joining us there. Um, okay, this is also the time of year where we get 13Fs, where we know what the big hedge fund guys are doing. We're getting some activist information earlier today. Um, Dan Loeb uh, took a stake in Disney, um, is looking for an ESPN spinoff. Elliott Management, this is according to Dow Jones, also has a large position in Cardinal Health. So who do we talk to? Shani Basic. She joins us now here in the studio. What do we know so far? Yeah, it's interesting to see the activists come back at this point in time. The markets are shaking out, aren't they? The Dan Loeb letter is interesting because you do see Disney shares react really 
really positively to this idea that Dan Loeb wants them to spin off ESPN to create more value out of it, integrate Hulu more aggressively, pay down debt. Uh, and it's really a moment of uh, a real testing moment for CEO Bob Chapek as he kind of takes over the reins and pushes this company into the future that uh, Bob Iger was really known for for so long. Elliot, of course, has been on a bit of a spree, as they always are. <laughs> and so this Cardinal Health news is news on top of a lot of other very interesting campaigns this year. I think PayPal being one of the most uh, vocal and uh, and out there, given the stake is not only so big, but also, you know, you are really seeing these companies not only start to show what performance looks like in the face of a potential recession, but these activists coming in there and saying, and by the way, activists, as a whole are down almost 20% on the year in wow. terms of their own fund strategies, say to these investors, hey guys, you know, we see more value, we'll take a big stake, we'll hope it plays out in the next couple of years. Well, we're going to find out what hedge funds more broadly think about the rally that we've seen in stocks. It's fascinating, Guy, because you were talking about nuance there. You do see some big funds snapping up some really big names. So take Dan Sundime, for example, which has started a rebound at D1 in July after being down more than 25% on the year. You do see him snap up things like Tesla, Risk Asset there. Soros is snapping up Tesla uh, and Amazon. Uh, Alphabet is actually the biggest buy right now if you mm-hmm. look at the aggregated filings. But I don't want to confuse people here because if you look at at the aggregate sells, you have technology being still in sell-off mode in the second quarter for the aggregate funds. That means some big names like Alphabet are winning out, but also a lot of funds are buying things like you know uh, ETFs tied to gold and treasuries. That's interesting. So it's a weird dynamic here where you are seeing some names being bought up. The likes of an alphabet being bought up by like a Harvard endowment, Georgetown endowment, Soros fund management, and then hedge funds really uh, behaving a little bit differently as they normally do, a little more nimbly in this market, less long-term betting. Well, that's what's interesting too is that I read a lot over the weekend about what was driving the rally in stocks: CTAs, quants, hedge funds, shorting, uh, net leverage uh, is super low, like all those things. Right. What have you learned? Yes, so not all of those things are not super healthy buying, right? So yes, hundred percent. And it goes to show that there's been a lot of steam taken out of the hedge fund universe this year so far. Uh, I did talk to a massive prime broker over the weekend, and one of the things he was saying was, if the markets continue with this kind of, let's say, complacently, since the the VIX is kind of low right now, uh, the worst of the damage was over for the first half of the year. If that continues, then we might look at a bit of a further the rebound and some healthy rebounding ahead. But again, it's really anyone's guess whether the environment can turn for the worst mm-hmm. on a dime like it has all year. Shinali, thank you very much. Great stuff. Alex was jumping in there to say thank you, but I thought I'd get in there first because I really appreciate the work that you do. Uh, we'll have more from Shinali, I suspect, tomorrow. <laughs> I love she, you guys. <laughs> yeah, you know, what he was saying was, Alex, you should have picked up on that. We had 39 seconds to go. You should have thanked, but you didn't. You far forgot the clock, therefore I'm thanking. Am I right? Still love you both. Bye. <laughs> She's like, I'm getting out of this domestic dispute. I, I didn't say that at all. Up next, this time last earnings season, Walmart was causing all kinds of shenanigans. Walmart's numbers drops tomorrow. We're going to find out what we can expect next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Alex Steele. 
The last earnings season we had, one of the biggest surprises was produced by the retailers, in particular Home Depot and Walmart. They completely mismanaged their inventory, they shocked everybody, it caused huge ructions within the market. We're also about to get retail sales data out of the United States. That will be Wednesday. But before that, we get uh, Home Depot and Walmart. So what should we be expecting. Brendan Case joins us now to discuss. Brendan, last time round, these retailers caused a few hiccups. Are we going to see a repeat of that? Yeah, they sure did. And not only that, but they went on to cause additional anxiety during the quarter. Just three weeks ago, Walmart cut its earnings outlook again, saying that consumers were spending less on general merchandise, which tends to be more profitable, and more on groceries because of soaring inflation. So we know a little bit about what they're going to say tomorrow. In fact, we know a lot in terms of the, the headline numbers. What we'll be looking for is what they have to say about the outlook for the rest of the year, the big holiday shopping season, and how they see such high inflation uh, you know, continuing to, to exert a big impact on shoppers. What's the, what's the probability that we'll see more negativity? Like, is the worst in? Is the bottom in for Walmart in terms of all the bad news? I think that's probably question number one, because having cut its outlook so recently, the general expectation is that it won't do that again. But is it possible that things have deteriorated so much just in the last few weeks that it will feel forced to do that again? Or maybe without cutting its outlook, it, it just sort of has negative, pessimistic things to say about how consumer behavior is going to be affecting its bottom line. So I think there is a real chance for some negative, for some more negativity there. Um, and we'll just have to see, you know, what, 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 what they say and what kind of tone they strike. The housing market is definitely starting to exhibit signs of slowing down. How I, we, Home Depot obviously has some exposure there. Walmart has some exposure there. Kind of, if you look at what is happening in the different segments of the of, of the market, if the housing market continues to slow, how on the hook are these guys? Yeah, that's right. That will be a big hit for Home Depot, which has been generally outperforming expectations yeah. in most of its recent earnings reports. It would also hurt Walmart. The other wild card for Walmart is um, if you think about shoppers up and down the income spectrum, certainly everyone is, is affected by inflation, but maybe the, the people experiencing the most pain and having to cut back the most are, are people towards the lower income mm -hmm. uh, levels. And, you know, they're a big part of Walmart's clientele. At the flip and so side, there's I a lot of question marks out there. On the flip side, though, I feel like that's the area in the UMish survey that actually saw the the best expectation that they feel better, they're making more money. So I also wonder how that feeds through um, to Walmart. In in terms of the read through through other companies, last time it was Walmart and Target really stood out as the two that just did not have their handle on inventory correctly. What's going to be the read through from Walmart to the other retailer? Like, what's going to be the other guy we got to watch? Yeah, the the you know the other the. The similarity between Walmart's problems and Target's problems the last few months have been really noteworthy and and somewhat surprising. So I think whatever Walmart says, people are going to be comparing that with what with what Target says on on Wednesday. And I think the other big watch item is what they have to say about the holiday season. That's crucial for 
all retailers, some more than others. Um, and, you know, there were, uh, Bloomberg had a story out earlier today talking about a little bit of weakness in factory orders in China. Mm-hmm. These companies, these big U.S. retailers are, are big importers, of course, from China. Um, you know, will they talk about sort of a flat holiday season? Mm-hmm. Are they pretty upbeat about the holiday season? That's going to be a big watch item this week. All right, looking forward to it. It's going to be a really fun retail week. Brendan Case joining us from Bloomberg. And to that point, we also get retail sales out on Wednesday. And then how higher rates from the Fed also affect how consumers feel and what they spend on. We're going to talk to the chief U.S. economist over at MasterCard. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you're listening to The Cable. I'm Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. We were just talking about Walmart earnings. They're coming out tomorrow before the opening bell. The other key piece of retail data we're going to get out is Wednesday. You get retail sales coming out for July. Um, the control group is expected to rise by six-tenths of one percent, though. Sequentially, though, there'll be a bit of a decrease. So how well can the consumer really hold up? Good side, gas prices have come down. Bad side, inflation is still high. So to set us all up for this week, Guy and I spoke to Michelle Meyer. She is a chief U.S. economist over at MasterCard, and we just wanted to get an idea of how the consumers are doing. Consumers have been facing high inflation. They've been facing high prices, for particularly for things like gas and food. Although recently, in the last month or so, gas prices have come down, which has been a really nice welcome. Um, the labor market has remained very robust. They still have income flowing in, but they're apprehensive about what comes next for the economy. So clearly, the surveys have shown that consumers are worried. They're trying to plan ahead. They're trying to think about how to navigate this economic environment. But in the interim, they are still outspending. When you look at nominal spend, when we look at our own data, MasterCard spending pulse data, you are seeing you know, still very mm-hmm. solid spending trends. Yeah, that was something we, we took away from Joanne. Like, no one feels good, but they're still buying the stuff. What stuff are they spending on? So there's been, you know, pretty decisive shifts in how consumers are spending. Certainly the theme throughout this summer has been one of experience-based spending. We are seeing, you know, very, very strong and consistently strong spend on travel, on restaurants, um, on recreation. So people going back out and living their lives again post the COVID period. Um, Goods-related spending has been weaker. It has not fallen off a cliff by any means. There has not been a cute drop. But you have seen some navigation away from certain types of items, and consumers are just trying to figure out how to balance their consumer trends. And they're also responding, importantly, to relative price differences. So you have seen consumers making some choices where, you know, in certain categories where prices have just increased in a painful way, they're looking to shift towards other types of items which are a little bit more absorbable when it comes to those prices. Michelle, how is this spending being financed and are we seeing a shift? So when you look at, you know, the data, so the Federal Reserve consumer credit data, for example, you certainly have seen an increase in credit card spending, a pretty meaningful one throughout the month of, throughout the quarter, uh, uh, the second quarter. Um, And that makes sense because if you look at what happened during the pandemic period, there was, you know, a, a, a drop in credit card usage because of the stimulus funds that were coming in because of the quarantine people staying at home, not necessarily needing to to spend as much and accruing savings. So you have seen a re-engagement from that Federal Reserve data in terms of credit card usage. Um, You have seen some drawdown in savings, although really only modest so far if you look Mm. at overall aggregate levels of savings. 
And remember, income is still flowing in. Look at that last jobs report. It was extremely strong. So aggregate income is still increasing at a healthy pace. Yeah, and we saw um, in the UMIS report that those with lower incomes are actually feeling a bit better because uh, of the wage increases there. So, Michelle, I'm curious as to what happens October 1st, because presumably everyone's back in school, right? You said airline sales are up over 13%. Lodging is up almost 30%. If that stops... What's your visibility? Are we going to still spend stuff and buy things or are we just going to stop? Yeah. So I think, it, you know, you kind of continue to see these seasonal switches. So remember, we're looking at year over year changes or three year changes. So those seasonality adjustments are embedded in those 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 percent changes. Right. So you do see the consumer move from the travel period of the summer to a back to school type of spending to you know perhaps starting to get ready for the holiday shopping season which gets pulled forward um, quite a lot if you look at the last two years october you're well into the holiday shopping season already um, so i think the preferences do change you know seasonally which makes sense um, i think the bigger question though is you know does the economic environment change which really adjusts purchasing power for the consumer michelle meyer mastercard's chief economist talking to alex and i a little bit earlier on um, people are cautious, but they're continuing to spend, seems to be the message at the moment. My question is, for how much longer? The housing market is really critical here. Gas prices have come down, which put people sort of money back into people's pockets. Mm -hmm. But that looks like it's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah, bumpy indeed. And also just bumpy and confusing because they're going to keep buying things, but where they buy it will be different. Um, and I think that that's the takeaway. And I think we need to learn from retailers when the numbers come out is if they have any visibility into what the money is shifting into. Um, Which is really hard because these guys have no really kidding. long lead times. Like they're buying stuff six months to a year in advance. Yeah. And yet it, consumer trends are changing on a dime. They already bought for Christmas. Like, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and I think the question then also becomes, how do, how does, so Michelle seemed pretty sanguine about the housing market, saying that like, yes, they're slowing, we're supposed to slow, that's what the Fed wants to do. Yeah. But, if I, but if I'm looking at my house price appreciation falling, don't I feel less wealthy and then I buy less stuff? I mean, also, if it has so, the wealth effect on the upside, shouldn't it have it on the downside? So I hear what you say, but the other big factor around that is people buy the most stuff for their homes when they move home. And as mm -hmm. the market slows down, then you're potentially going to see less movement within the housing market. The labor market maybe starts to move around a little bit as well. So mm -hmm. that kind of is another factor into the mix as well. But if people aren't moving home as much, they're not going to be buying as much. Yep. I mean... And then there's shoes. In theory. So Guy and I, so we have a chat going with our team. And when we're talking about retail, uh, he says, there's only so much stuff you can buy. And I was like, I don't, I don't understand your point. There's I'm refreshing. There's a clothing. refreshing cycle. Although I should point out that, you know, in theory, there should be a lot of discounts over the next few months as, as retailers weed out their inventory. But after that, yep. I got to wonder if it's going to be really tight inventory for these guys or are they going to try and uh, stock too much? In which case, maybe there won't be sales, which is well, like this, death knell for me. I didn't expect them to be sales this time around. I thought that wouldn't be happening. I thought they would have had a better sort of grip on the, on the narrative. But A, the weather... B consumer trend. Everything is changing so fast at the moment that I think the consumer the, the consumer is completely bamboozling the retailers, and and I think therefore there is the danger that we continue to see this overstocking situation. Apparently there are whole wharfs at Long Beach full of stuff that nobody mm -hmm. wants. Mm -hmm. That's I mean that's what do you do with that? 
You're going to have to discount it. You're going to have to sell, sell it. Sell it so, to Alex Steele. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm pretty picky now. I got, you know, I'm trying to rein in the spending, but I also want to take advantage of deals. This is a hard time. This is a hard time right now. Um, hope you enjoyed the show. You listen to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. Guy and I will be back here tomorrow. We'll dissect everything happening in Europe as well as what's happening with Walmart here in the U.S. Have a great night, guys. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>